Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of Meta Strategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. Welcome to the 500th episode of Technovation. I want to start by giving a heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners, for welcoming us into your offices, homes, through your commutes and exercise regimes, and in all other places in which you found time to listen. It's the feedback I receive from so many of you that keeps our bar high in terms of the quality of the content and the interviewees. Whether you're a longtime subscriber or a first-time listener, thank you sincerely. My guest today is David Rubenstein. David's the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest investment management firms, with $230 billion of assets under management. In addition to his role at Carlyle, David's also involved in many philanthropic endeavors, including serving as the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., as well as on the Council on Foreign Relations. In this interview, we discuss David's youth growing up in a blue-collar family in Baltimore, his experience working in the Jimmy Carter administration, and his interpretation as to why the administration was viewed as unsuccessful. We also discuss David's decision to leave government and the legal profession to start Carlisle. We discuss how the firm got major prominent political figures to join the firm, including presidents and prime ministers, David's decision to have the business diversify and go global, his rationale for taking the firm public, and we discuss David's philanthropic endeavors and why he has decided to give all of his money away. We also discuss why he now stays out of politics and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Peter, you keep calling us an unusual enterprise software company. I think we should talk about that a bit. Yes, we have not borrowed a single dollar from a VC or a bank and ended up bootstrapping our way to multi-billion dollar SaaS business with over 60 million enterprise users. That itself is unusual for a tech company. But the principles that have kept us from accepting VC term sheets are simple. We believe all our employees should have good night's sleep each night, be it month-end, quarter-end, or year-end. To enable this principle, we have stayed private and have not dipped into public money. We don't believe in debt and discourage anyone from getting in one. A good night's sleep has its premium. Yes, we believe in good night's sleep and eating healthy foods. That's why we leave money on the table. It comes from our principle of eating healthy food. Just because there is food on the table, we don't believe it's healthy to eat it all. Therefore, any product we market, be it CRM, Sign, Help Desk, and 100 others, these will be many multiples cheaper than our nearest competitor. And it comes from the principle of leaving money on the table. Find out more about our unusual enterprise company at Zoho.com. Thanks, Timothy. I also wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. 
At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. David Rubenstein, welcome to Technovation. It's a pleasure to have you today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, no, it's, it's, a, it's an honor indeed. Well, David, I, I, what I must tell you, I'm a, a frequent watcher and listener of the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, uh, available both on Bloomberg and PBS, as well as in podcast form. And uh, although I want to you know, kind of go through a bit about your career and some of you know, what you see in the future uh, from where you sit, I wanted to actually ask you a quick question at the beginning of our interview as somebody who does so many interviews about your interview style. Um, you have a dry sense of humor uh, and you often ask questions um, well, as an example, I might ask you, for, for example, with you as in this context, you might ask a question like, David, you've been an enormous, uh, enormously successful uh, private equity uh, leader and investor. Uh, were you born into great wealth with parents who had tremendous uh, financial acumen? Yeah, knowing full well the answer to your right. question, but offering a guess that's the opposite of what you know to be true, which in essence, at least my interpretation is a, is a chance for them to... Uh, to, to to offer some commentary that might be otherwise considered immodest, but because you have set them up that way, it sort of sets them down that path. Is that is that a fair characterization of the way in which you think about the the questions you pose in your interviews? That's a very uh, trenchant observation. And yes, um, what I do try to do is let the interviewee take command of the interview in the sense of not talking over them the way some interviewers, not you, but some interviewers famously do, uh, I won't mention names, but there's some interviewers who have elaborate questions, and then the answer is just yes or no, and then they go on and do another elaborate question. It's more about the interviewer than the interviewee. Secondly, I always think that humor um, works if you know what you're doing, and 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 uh, giving people a chance to talk about things that uh, about their background and their struggles and so forth usually work, and getting people to laugh at themselves usually works, and uh, so those are kind of the things I often do. Yes. Excellent. Well, I, I certainly do find it effective. So, David, um, you've been an enormously successful person, uh, a leader of a private equity firm. Uh, were you born into great wealth with parents who had tremendous financial acumen? I guess you know the answer to that. Um, no, uh, <laughs> I, I grew up in uh, Baltimore in very modest blue collar setting. Uh, if your last name is Rubenstein, somebody might think your father's a doctor or a lawyer, but there are a lot of blue-collar Jews in Baltimore, at least there were when I was growing up. I assume there are still. Uh, and my father dropped out of high school to go into World War II. He never completed high school when he came back. My mother dropped out of high school to get married. And they were 20 and 17, respectively. And those were not unusual ages to get married in those days, I guess. I was their only child. Um, but, um, I, you know, we had a blue-collar environment. So I wasn't poor. I don't want to make it sound like I'm you know, starving or anything, but I, you know, an 800 square foot house, uh, two bedrooms, one bathroom, no air conditioning. And it was a very modest upbringing, but 
when you grow up in those settings, you adapt to what you are used to. So I didn't say, geez, I wish I was rich. I guess I wish I had a gigantic home. You live in the circumstances you're born into and you adapt to it. And if you want to improve it, you can in this country with some extent, exceptions, of course. Yeah. Well, tell me, what do you suppose your parents' uh, aspirations were for you? I'd love to understand yours as well. But um, given given those circumstances and that the fact that you were their only child and thus their their focus, at least from a per- parenting perspective, what do you suppose th- their aspirations were? My parents did not have high aspirations because they nobody in our extended family really had been college educated and they didn't really have professionals in the family. They were all blue collar kind of workers. My mother was happy if I went to college, but if I said I wasn't going to college, I was going to work in the post office like my father, she would say, okay, fine. Uh, my mother did say from time to time she wanted me to be a dentist because she thought you could be called a doctor, didn't have weekend hours and so forth. But I knew that I, I, I didn't want to do that. So I thought I told her I might get arthritis in my fingers and so forth. And that would end my career. So she said, you know, do whatever you want. My parents were not really career pushers. They didn't want me to be a lawyer necessarily or a doctor or dentist. They were happy with whatever I wanted to be. And and therefore, I didn't feel an enormous pressure to do something. And so where did your ambition come from? You, you uh, suffice it to say, have done something. We'll get into the details of that momentarily. But without the push from one's parents, which is oftentimes uh, where that comes from, at least originally, uh, where did your, where, how did that fire get lit in you? Well, I loved reading and I read about a lot of people who had achieved things. So I guess maybe you, know, you have heroes when you're younger. I was in a youth group in Baltimore, and it was led by a man who had a very impressive educational background. He tried to inspire young teenage boys that he was uh, kind of overseeing to kind of do something useful with your life. And uh, I got a lot of luck along the way. But again, I don't consider myself that successful compared to the standards that I have set for myself. I look at people like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, what they've done is staggering, or, or Jim Baker was in our firm, what he did in government is staggering, or people like that. So I got very lucky in the latter part of my life. It's modestly successful career, but not as high as I would wish I could have been. But I took, you know, what I got. Well, you so you went on to Duke University. You did go to to, to uh, college uh, where you were an undergraduate. You went on to the University of Chicago for law school. Uh, and I'm curious, actually, uh, sort of a similar question. Now, advancing a little bit in the narrative, um, having gone to law school around the time which you were graduating. What, how would you have defined success then, say, 10 years or 15 years out? What, what were you shooting for at that point uh, as a freshly minted uh, attorney? I had no interest in money. Uh, you know, if you make a lot of money later in your life, people say you must be interested. I had absolutely no interest in money. My parents had no money. Nobody I knew had any real amount of money. And so I was really only interested in one thing, which is politics and government. I, I love, you know, John Kennedy and and the idea of being in government and the White House and that kind of thing, and making a difference by working in politics, that's all I cared about. And so um, it, to me, then the, the, the highest calling would be to get a job in the White House and be a senior advisor to a president. And I admired a man named Ted Sorensen, who had been John Kennedy's speechwriter and at the age of 31 was a top aide to President Kennedy. And I admired that. And so I thought that was the highest goal. And then after that, I hadn't really focused on anything beyond that. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you would uh, uh, join a law firm for the first couple of years out of, of undergrad, but then reach your aspiration, at least to a degree, by joining Jimmy Carter's administration. T- talk a bit about that pivot. How did uh, that opportunity present itself, or, or how did you go find it? And uh, talk a bit about your experience there. I did reasonably well in law school, but I wasn't the superstar in the class. The superstars in the class became Supreme Court clerks, but I did well enough to get a job in a very famous law firm in New York, Paul Weiss. 
And there, Ted Sorensen was at. So I, I really wanted to go there. It was a law firm that mixed politics with the law, I thought. And after a couple of years of doing it, I realized I really wasn't a great lawyer. I didn't have a passion for it. But Ted Sorensen helped open some doors for me. And I got a job with Birch Bayh in the Senate, who was running for president. I thought he'd be president. He dropped out. Then I'm saying, oh, my career is over. My man who was going to be president is not going anywhere. I got the job in the Senate, but you know, it's a chairman of the, the, the chief counsel of the Senate subcommittee on constitutional amendments. We're not going to have any more constitutional amendments. So what am I going to do? So I got a call out of the blue, as often happens with people in life. I had a lucky call. I happened to be there. I didn't have a secretary at the time. If I hadn't answered, I probably wouldn't have got the job to interview for a job with Jimmy Carter's staff in the general election. I got the job. I went to work there. We were 33 points ahead of Gerald Ford when I joined. We won by one point. So I thought, oh, maybe I won't get anything. But in the end, uh, White House staff are you know, staffed by uh, people who work in the campaign. So my boss became the domestic advisor, Stuart Eisenstadt, and I became his deputy. And um, I thought, what could be better in life? I'm working in the White House, an office in the West Wing. I'm 27 years old. I'm making more money than I would have been making practicing law because of the way the government salaries worked then. And um, it was great. I'm rising the president, going to Camp David, Marine One, uh, Air Force One. I thought also, I believe when everybody came to me and said how brilliant young White House aide I was, that if I ever want a job, call him. I said, I don't want a job because I'm going to be in the second term of Carter. I'll be the senior domestic advisor. And then we lost the elections. Of course, then these people didn't want to hire me after we lost the election. So that's when the low point in my career was uh, happened. I, I couldn't get a job for a number of months. I thought I was a lawyer, going to get a big law firm to give me an offer. But they said, you've only practiced law two years. You don't really have a specialty. Reagan's in power. Carter's out of power. You have nothing to offer. And I couldn't disagree with them, I guess. But um, I didn't want to tell my mother, so I kept saying I had so many job offers, I didn't want to know which one to take, but she probably figured it out eventually. After six months, I didn't have any offers. Finally, I got an offer and I started over again, but I realized I wasn't that good at it. You have to have a passion for something. You know, you're very good at what you do. You have a passion for it. And if you don't have a passion for something, you'll be, never be great at it. Nobody's ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love it. And I didn't love the practice of law and it didn't love me. So I got lucky. I started a little firm in Washington. I thought it'd be tiny and it grew to be one of the larger ones in the world. And that my career, you know, changed. Indeed. Before we leave the Carter years, if you don't mind, sure. maybe you can offer just a, a few thoughts on on the Carter administration, having been on the inside. Obviously, a one-term president, somebody who whose post-presidency has been viewed as more successful than the actual presidency, I think many at least would say. Um, you know, what are your own thoughts about uh, Jimmy Carter now with some distance? Jimmy Carter's been an ex-president for 40 years, um, the longest time anybody's ever been an ex-president, and he's also the oldest person ever been president. He's now 96. He was only president, obviously, for four years. Um, at the time, he had only been governor of Georgia for four years, and he wasn't that popular when he left the governorship there. Um, I think he was a really smart person who wanted to do so many things that he couldn't prioritize. So he would say, I want to do 50 things, not three things. He also didn't care about politics and, and took a lot of pride in not caring about politics. So very often in Washington, the politics of things are, are what really controls the outcome. And he didn't really care about politics, didn't want to do the political things, often necessary to get things done. He uh, was a hard worker and he thought he was smarter than the staff and he may have been, but he didn't delegate very much. So he didn't have a, a high powered staff who could do many things he thought as well as he could do them. So he tried to do too much. He didn't prioritize. He wasn't a gifted public speaker. Um, all those things came back to haunt him. But more, more significantly, we had the hostages and he kind of bonded with the idea of never having the hostages harmed in any way. And as a result, um, he never did anything to really um, lead to their being killed. And the result of that was that we spent a year trying to get him back. And uh, that really, I think, doomed his presidency. High inflation didn't help. And also he had an inter-party fight. 
very rarely do, do people get reelected when they have an intra-party fight. Gerald Ford was challenged in, 70, uh, in 1976 by Ronald Reagan. He lost. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was challenged by um, uh, several people in 1992, and he lost. Carter was challenged. He lost by Kennedy. So he was weakened by the challenge by Kennedy, weakened by the hostages, weakened by the high inflation, and you could say weakened by his deputy domestic policy advisor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm curious also, uh, I, I want to get into the, the the genesis story of Carlisle and, and, and into some of the details of your work there, which have made up such a large part of your career, needless to say. You met, you alluded to earlier, though, that you have you have friendships. Uh, you mentioned James Baker, a, a famous, uh, uh, well, famous leader on multiple fronts, from chief of staff to uh, treasury secretary to secretary of state within Republican administrations, um, Reagan through George H.W. Bush. Uh, and and you also, of course, served in a Democratic um, uh, administration as well, as you just detailed. Uh, it strikes me, uh, and I wanted to to test the hypothesis with you, that you were involved in politics during a time where being affiliated with ones with one party as opposed to the other wasn't so so damning to the other party. And and therefore, I I, I guess my question is, you've been so successful since um, going back into or going into business, I guess, for the first time in in. Uh, uh, post post your time in the Carter administration in recruiting people from Republican administrations as well as Democratic in, uh, administrations. You know, what, what, what is my hypothesis correct that that's partially due to the fact that you were in politics at a time where you weren't marked with a scarlet A, so to say, by being with one party versus another? Well, at the time um, in the 70s, uh, any major legislation uh, that was passed in, passing in Congress had to have bipartisan support. And so people who were Democrats, Republicans socialized with each other. They traveled with each other. They liked each other. It wasn't considered a mark of, uh, hip, uh, of, of uh, bad, being a bad member of the Democratic or Republican Party to socialize with somebody on the opposite side. So I was not that ideological. I was not, you know, a, a uh, ideological issue driven person, I suppose. I suppose I was more driven by the thrill of working on some of these issues and, and being uh, in the White House. So I, um, I'm not that political. And so when I left the White House, I did recruit people who had worked for uh, President uh, Bush, and I recruited people who worked for President Clinton. And uh, it didn't seem like a big problem. I would say that uh, I stay out of politics now. I, I realize that my uh, best value is probably not being in politics. So I do not make political contributions. I don't go attend any political fundraisers. I, as a chairman of the Kennedy Center, I was a chairman of the Smithsonian, chairman of the Library Congress Board, and Chairman of Council on Foreign Relations, I've thought that staying out of politics would be good. I'll give an example. Um, I um, wanted to bring people from both parties together in my modest way. So I started a program at the Library of Congress where I bring together uh, members of Congress from both parties, and I host a dinner for them once a month, and I interview a great historian. And I give them a dinner, and we talk about uh, the, the, the historian's uh, work in American history, and then we have a cocktail party and so forth. Members like it a lot. Two to 300 members show up each time, and they like it because it's apolitical. They can sit with people in the opposite party. There's no press there that will write about that they're sitting with somebody from the opposite party. And so I, I view that as a good thing to do. I just wish it, it would you know, become more significant in Washington. People aren't, aren't so afraid of dealing with people from the opposite party, but that's another issue. So I am not that political, and I stay out of politics now completely. And I think that's helpful in being chairman of the Kennedy Center, for example, or, or chairman of the Smithsonian. Understood. You you left politics in in 1981, I suppose it was, at the conclusion of the Carter administration. It would 
it would be 1987 that you would find, uh, found Carlisle. Um, talk a bit about the that Genesis story. What led you down the path towards developing what has become a multinational private equity, alternative asset management, and financial services corporation? Well, I would say the low period in my career after I couldn't get a job for about four or five months was practicing law. I thought I would go in as a partner in a major law firm, and the best thing I could get was a you know relatively junior associate in a you know, um, medium-sized law firm. And uh, the business was basically eat what you kill. If you bring in clients, you service them. And if you don't bring in clients, you're not going to get anywhere. I didn't have any real expertise. Nobody else in the firm was going to call me up and say, work on this matter because I had any real expertise. So it was a business I realized in the end that the law firm business was really not a profession anymore. It was a business. And when we had partnership meetings, I eventually became a partner. we mostly just talked about money, how much money we're making, how much money we could make and so forth. So I said to myself, if you're going to be in business and you're not a profession so much, why not be in business where you can make more money? Because you might as well, for the same amount of energy, you probably can make more money and maybe that'd be a good thing to do as I was, you know, having kids and so forth. So I, um, I was inspired by a guy named Bill Simon. He did a deal where he bought something called Gibson greeting cards from RCA and basically put in $330,000 and he made $80 million in about a year and a half. I read about it and I said, hey, that's that's better than what I'm doing. I didn't know what a leverage buyout was, but I figured I could learn it about it. So that was one inspiration. Secondly, I read that uh, entrepreneurs tend to, start their, start, tend to start their companies between the age of 28 and 37. And I read that when I was 37. So I realized <laughs> if I didn't start at 37, that would be uh, a mark. And also I, I read, read that people accomplish great things if they love what they're doing. It's a passion for them. I love working in the White House. I never took a day off. I didn't like practicing law. I didn't like uh, running around looking for clients. I didn't like the fact that I probably I wasn't that good at what I was doing. And I just didn't feel I had the passion for it. So I started this little company. It took off because we had good people who were uh, in doing the investing and I helped raise the money. And it, it worked out because we did something nobody else had done before, but, but um, it worked out. How, how did you come up with the name or how did you all come up with the name? Um, what happened was uh, we had the usual uh, Greek and Roman names that nobody could pronounce, and um, so we didn't we we, did, we did discarded them because they either were taken or they were unpronounceable by us. And then we I came up with a brilliant name of something like the um, Washington International Finance and Investment Company, which exactly doesn't roll off your tongue. <laughs> so uh, one of my partners had read a book about Andre Mayer, who had been the head of Lazard Frere, and he lived at the Carlisle Hotel and had a let's say an active social life while living there as a single man. And so my partner aspired to have that kind of uh, life, live at the Carlisle and have a nice social life in New York. And he said, why not the Carlisle? And I said, wait a second, two syllables, easily pronounceable, sounds British, upper class, sounds like we're better than we are. Yeah, why not? So we did it. That's very interesting. And, and actually, so you, you mentioned the Carlisle, which is in New York, which is also where a lot of the LBOs were at the time. Um, obviously, you were based in Washington, which is one reason to to uh, to start a firm there. But but presumably, as you're thinking about the long term for this, you want to be in a city that's of strategic importance to you. Um, why why Washington and not New York, for example, or or other cities for that matter? What was the what was the advantage of being in D.C.? Everett Dirksen, um, who was a Senate Minority Leader during the 1960s, famously said. If you're getting kicked out of town, get out in front and pretend you're leading a parade. Now, what does that mean? That means take advantage of the situation you find yourself in. I was in Washington. Um, I had some kids. Um, my partners that I was recruiting were in Washington. Um, and I, I didn't really know New York. And I, I think in New York, if you were going to start a buyout firm, you would have to have an investment banking background because 
that's the only people that were doing those deals in those days where people were investment bankers, they were converting to private equity people. So I decided to do it in Washington and I decided to take advantage of it by saying to our early investors, we understand companies heavily affected by the federal government better than the guys in New York. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, but it sounded good. Secondly, as it turns out, when we early on, we were able to recruit some people like Frank Carlucci, Jim Baker, uh, who were distinctive, and we could probably recruit them because we're in Washington and we understood their value, and therefore it, it worked out. But you know, if you were hiring McKinsey or BCG and saying where should you launch a private equity firm, they wouldn't pick Washington D.C. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. You, you founded the company with William Conway and Daniel Daniello. Um, what did the three of you? Uh, what, what unique strengths did each of you bring to the table? Bill Conway, uh, I didn't really uh, know him, but what happened was I went to recruit a woman who was then the treasurer of Gannett. Her name was Gracia Martori, and I heard she was really good to become the treasurer of Gannett. And I went to see her, and she said, now, let me see if I got it right. You want to start a buyout firm in Washington. You've never done a buyout before. You have no capital raised, and you want me to give up my job that I've just gotten to be the treasurer of Gannett to join a, a firm of people who've never worked together, who don't have no money, and don't have no buyout experience. I said, that's right. She <laughs> said, I don't think so. But she, as I was walking out, she said, there's a guy named Bill Conway, who's the CFO of MCI. I heard he might be leaving. So I called him and I recruited him. And then uh, he had a pretty good finance experience. And Dan Daniello was considered a star at Marriott. And um, he was willing to take a chance. And so it worked out. That's great. And, and, and then what do you, what was your kind of contribution to, to, to this mix? Like what, what was it that obviously you understood government and you, you were recruiting people into the firm from government, as you pointed out before, uh, but it, it was a new industry to, to you. Uh, you know, how did you get your footing? Where did you focus your, your attention in those early years? Well, you probably, that's the conversation that Bill and Dan were having when I wasn't in the room. Like, what is <laughs> Rubenstein doing here? Um, the answer to the question is this, uh, neither of them had buyout experience, but they had finance experience. They had uh, University of Chicago MBA or Harvard MBA, and they they had some experience. They were in their 30s, but they were experienced. Um, in any organization, if you are going to make a name for yourself, you have to find an area that is your own and focus on it and, and become an expert on, in it. And then when you become the expert in that area, people say, Joe is an expert in area A. Let me see if he can do area B because it's sort of like area A. And so I figured I'd have to develop an expertise and then I could get other things. So I said to the guys, look, I don't really know how to invest, but here's what I'll do. I'll go on the road and raise the money. Somebody has to raise the money. I've never been a fundraiser before. I don't wear suspenders. I don't smoke cigars. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do the kind of stuff that I imagine fundraisers did, but I, I will do it. And so I taught myself how to be a fundraiser, which is to ask for money. And I was willing to travel and run around the world begging for money. And that was my uh, contribution, I guess. Yep. Very interesting, and, and and you you also probably were very much involved. I would imagine in the strategy of recruiting uh, those very uh, people who yes. were in in administrations. And, and uh, talk a bit about that. I, I I imagine anyway that that was relatively new to the industry. Um, how did that occur to you? I mean, it's it's the milieu you were you were a part of. I recognize, and so perhaps there was that connection. But in terms of you know taking people who did not like yourself didn't have prior like yourself at the genesis of this did not have a business experience but had a, a network that would be useful to this talk talk a bit about the, the sort of the inspiration behind that well like uh the idea of starting the firm itself um it, it wasn't something that uh mckinsey would have recommended that i do and it's not that uh, bcg or bain would have recommended i do it in washington so it's like many things that happen in life, it happens by serendipity and sometimes it works out. So what happened was one of my former law partners said to me, Frank Carlucci is leaving as Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan, George Bush was becoming president, 
and he's not a lawyer, so he can't join a law firm. In those days, to be affiliated with, affiliated with a law firm, you had to be a lawyer. He wasn't a lawyer. So uh, he's looking for a perch to kind of hang out in Washington, more or less, in a place that is credible. And he's going to go on a lot of corporate boards. And I said, OK, I didn't really know him. Um, he was deputy CIA director in the Carter years, but I didn't deal with the CIA, so I didn't really know him. And so uh, we, we brought him over to the firm and he, we, he told us the situation. We said, OK, we made him a partner. And uh, he, we found that he could get anybody on the phone because he knew people as former Secretary of Defense. So he has great ability to open doors in an appropriate way. Um, so uh, four years later, I said, well, Carl Archie's really good, but Jim Baker is even bigger. So I went after Jim Baker and asked somebody to help me get introduced to him. And then Baker said, well, what about my friend, Dick Darman? I said, OK. And then ultimately they said, what about my friend, George Herbert Walker Bush? I said, OK. Then George Herbert Walker Bush said, what about my friend, John Major? And we said, OK. And so we had all these people. Now, you know, it was a big deal at the time because you had all these famous people in one firm. People were wondering what we're doing with them. They never really did any deals. They didn't lobby the government. What they did is if I invited you to have lunch with me, you wouldn't come probably if you were an investor. But if I said, would you like to have lunch with Jim Baker? You know, you might show up. So I would have them speak at lunches or dinners and so forth. And that's what they did. And, you know, they gave us a little credibility, I think, in, in, in around the world and with investor base. But, you know, they weren't really doing deals, but it worked a bit. And now other firms have done the same thing. It's certainly a point of, of differentiation, as you point out, in those early years. Um, how did you, how, how, what was your vision to further differentiate Carlisle from the other LBO shops, eventually private equity market? How do you see it as differentiated? We started in 1987. In 1989, RJR deal was done by KKR, a very famous deal, very the biggest buyout of all time at the time, I think $24 billion. KKR was seven people at the time. That's it. All these firms were tiny little mom and pop operations. They didn't have permanent capital. They weren't public. They were very small, but they had one thing in common. They only did one thing. They did buyouts or they might do venture capital. Those were the two big areas. I just came up with an idea one time. It, you know, I don't want to say it's the, the idea of the century. I don't think there's a Nobel Prize in private equity for coming up with the idea, but it was that why don't we build a fidelity or a T. Rowe price of private equity? We have a buyout business, fine, but why don't we have a venture business, a real estate business, a growth capital business, a credit business, and have many different funds. If you like the Carlisle brand, you can just like you like the Fidelity brand, you can go on many different funds. And then I had the second idea of globalizing it, which is to say, let's do a fund in Europe and Asia and Japan, so forth. And I was willing to go on the road to recruit the people to run the funds. And I was willing to go raise the money for the funds. And then I turned my partners and asked them to oversee the investment. So that was what enabled us to really grow. Obviously, the early years, we had some um, good successes in, in, in terms of rates of return. If, if I had these ideas and the rates of return were terrible in our early deals, it wouldn't have worked. And also having the Baker and Bush and those people associated with it was was probably helpful as well. Yeah, very interesting. Um, the the company in in May of 2012 went public. What was the what was behind the decision to go public at that time? Well, I thought that uh, a couple of things would happen. Uh, ultimately, if you build a firm in the in the investment world, the way it works is uh, eventually um, you know you have new generations come on and they will say, well. Who founded this firm? And why is that old guy still walking around here? And, and what is he doing taking up this office space? So, you know, eventually younger people want to come in and they would want to take the economics uh, that are associated with the firm. And so if you don't own stock in the firm, you probably eventually will not realize the, the rewards of building something. So just as Bill Gates took his company public or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, when you take your company public, you have a certain amount of stock and assuming it's not 
overly diluted, it's going to be stock that you have for some time. So I saw it, as did other people, as a way who did these kind of things, a way of ensuring you're going to have a certain value attached to your yourself for having created the firm and having built it. And uh, you know, and then that was a way also to eventually get rid of the founders and eventually you have new stock coming in for younger people, but the founders still get something for it. So I thought it was a way of doing that. I thought it was also a way of getting us some capital that we could expand the firm and grow. And that was another factor. That's why people often go public. Um, I also thought that it was, um, you know, an appropriate way to, to recognize what we had built and, and probably was, uh, uh, you know, an appropriate uh, thing to do and gave us more credibility, I think, as a public company. Very often, as a public company, you have more transparency. People take you more seriously in some ways. Yeah, very interesting. You are now the co-executive chairman of the organization. I yeah. uh, hope you don't mind mentioning it, but you're, you're in your 70s now. Uh, how, how long do you suppose you'll, you'll stay at this? Is this something you're hoping to do for, are you going to be like a Warren Buffett uh, still in your, your, that role when you're 90? Uh, what, what are your aspirations from that perspective? It is my observation that uh, people that, quote, retire very often, if they're not that active, they, something goes wrong. And I, I've known a few people retired from boards I've been on, and they retired, and honestly, they they died relatively shortly thereafter. I think there's something in the body that says, "I got to keep going. I got to keep going because this guy's crazy, but he wants me to keep going." And so I, I don't intend to ever retire. Um, I have changed my role. I'm the biggest shareholder at Carlisle, and I've never sold a share uh, to date. And I I I um, still involved in helping a lot of ways. But you know, when you're 71, you probably aren't going to be viewed by the 40 year olds as useful as it used to be. So I you know, do you know many things for the firm, but I'm not day-to-day running it, but I am, again, the biggest shareholder and co-chairman of the, uh, of the board. Um, I have set up a family office in uh, Washington and uh, New York and Boston to manage my money outside of Carlisle, but I, I spend a lot of my time on now on uh, not retirement things, but as the chairman of the Kennedy Center, it takes some time. I'm on the Harvard Corporation board. That takes some time. The University of Chicago board takes some time. I chair the Council of Foreign Relations. These all take time. And then I have a separate philanthropic program where I'm giving away a large amount of my money. I signed the giving pledge, as you noted. And so uh, that takes some time. And then I, um, I have three children who are involved now in the business world, and I try to help them a bit from time to time. And then I write some books. I have uh, one out on leadership now, one out on history before, another one coming out next year on history as well. And I, I do a lot of uh, TV interviewing, as you know. So I try to do things that will keep me busy so my body inside that the things inside the body can't say, hey, this guy's checked out. Why don't we slow down and let the immune system relax? I'm afraid of the immune system relaxes. All of a sudden, something bad will happen. So I, I keep going on. My parents live to be 85 and 86, respectively. Uh, my genes are not genes that would get me to 100. That doesn't happen in my family. Probably my genes are good enough to get to the mid 80s if I don't do something stupid. Um, and that's probably my goal. Well, it's, I, I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned your, your children. Uh, they grew up under very different circumstances than right. did you. And I'm curious, like, to, to, uh, how, did, um, how did your experience or how did you translate, um, you know, kind of what those things that you took from your own childhood uh, and, and the motivation perhaps that it gave you uh, and translate that into your, your, your role as a parent? Well, I... Um... Jackie Kennedy famously said that uh, if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. I don't know if you're, you have a children, but you know, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world to do is raise children that get to be happy and healthy. It's much harder if you're successful professionally and you're very wealthy, very difficult. The people who are the most successful professionally generally 
are people who came from modest backgrounds because they have more drive. They're more driven. They didn't have things handed to them. So I recognized as I was getting wealthier that my children might have less drive. So I did not live an ostentatious lifestyle. You know, I did have, you know, um, you know, some things and I, more than one house. Uh, but I tried not to flash my money. I tried not to brag about my money. I tried not to do things that would embarrass my children about flashing my money and so forth. If I was doing things that had a lot of money involved, it was usually giving it away so that people would, you know, know that I was doing something, try to give back to society. My kids would understand that. I often believe that the most important thing you can do for your kids is educate them well and and try and give them some motivation. So I, my kids are always recognize my view that education is important. They went to very good schools. They're highly educated. All three have MBAs. So you can say either failed or I succeeded. I don't know. But they all are in the, in the business world, basically. And, uh, you know, I've been willing to help them a bit, but I'm trying to stay back and not overwhelm them because of my reputation or my my money. So I want them to succeed on their own. And I think if they do, they'll get greater pleasure out of it than if they're seen as having succeeded only because of me. So, but again, raising children in a work in a wealthy environment is very difficult. And as we all have noted, the children of very wealthy and famous people don't often become um, so successful themselves. There are obviously exceptions, but it's it's more difficult. Yeah, that's very interesting. You've mentioned uh, your passion for philanthropy and the fact that you intend to give most of your money away. Uh, talk a bit about how you've thought about doing so, uh, the the areas in which you've invested. You and I both live in Washington, D.C., and I certainly have seen uh, firsthand uh, some of the things that you have done to, that have benefited everything from the repair of the Washington Monument to uh, key world documents that you put on display at various museums in this city, for example. But talk a bit about the philosophy that you've put towards your giving. So if you make a lot of money by normal human standards, I'm not Bill Gates, and I'm not Jeff Bezos, but by normal human standards, I have a lot of money. Um, what are you going to do with it? Well, you can be buried with it like the ancient pharaohs, but there's no evidence you really need it in the afterlife. So you, what you do is you can buy a lot of material possessions and just be proud of them. But my observation was that people that have a lot of material possessions aren't necessarily happier. And so if you're not going to do that, um, I think you can say, I'm going to give it all to my children, which is what most people tend to do. But the issue is whether you give a child a billion dollars, is that going to make that child a successful and happy person? Probably not. So I decided what I would try to do is give them a good education, be a good role model, and give away the bulk of my money. Bill Gates came to have me have lunch in my office one day and told me he was going to do the giving pledge. I said, okay. And I said, I won't give away half my money. I intend to give it all away, but I want to do it in my lifetime. And um, that's what I've been trying to do. So I, I get involved in a lot of different things. And now I would say the... Uh, you know, my real passions are things that uh, are related to education or medical research, but I have what I call patriotic philanthropy, which is to say things that remind people of the history and the heritage of the country. So fixing the Washington Monument, fixing, fixing Monticello, the Iwo Jima Memorial, uh, the Kennedy Center, or buying historic documents and essentially you know, putting them in places where they will eventually stay the rest of, uh, for the rest of time. And so uh, that's what I've been trying to do. And uh, you know, it's, I wish more people were doing it because we, we need to remember more about history and, and our heritage, uh, the good and the bad. But that's what I've decided to do. And I take great pleasure out of it. So, um, you know, what is, what is life all about? Uh, Thomas Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence about the pursuit of happiness to some extent. Well, what makes you happy? Well, if I'm giving away money and trying to help other people, it makes me happy. If I, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my mother, uh, who was not educated in a, in a traditional sense, but smart person, uh, when she was... Uh, you know, uh, when I was building Carlisle and, and she would read about it, she didn't ever call to me much about it. She didn't care about the fact that Carlisle bought this or Carlisle was going public. She never really mentioned it that much to me. When I started giving away money in large sums, she would call me and thank me. 
She said, you're doing something useful. I'm make, you're making me proud. And then after she died a few years ago, I went through her, the, her possessions and the scrapbook she put together only had things about my philanthropy, nothing about anything else, only about my philanthropy. So obviously made her proud. And as I like to, to say that, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, one of the most important things you can do is make your parents proud and make them happy that you've done something useful with your life. And I often ask people in my interviews, if their parents live to see them be successful because I think it's a very great pleasure in life if you can please your parents and make them happy that they had you. Yeah, that's fair. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, speaking of great stories, you've written a book called How to Lead Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers, drawing from some of the wisdom of this uh, vast network that you have. It includes stories from the likes of uh, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oprah, uh, Warren Buffett, among others. Um, well, you know, between this as well as uh, what came before it, this interview series that you have that I that we've re- referenced before, talk a bit about you know what you what you have learned through the through these conversation with your peers. You call it peer to peer conversations. These are people like yourself who've who've had uh, remarkable careers in a variety of different areas. What what have you learned um, about the pathway to success? by virtue of having so many in-depth conversations with people who've had outsized uh, success? Well, the, the name peer-to-peer might imply that I'm a peer of these people. I, I didn't come up with the name, um, okay. but uh, it does work a bit in the sense that if you're a journalist, maybe you do things differently. I don't put myself forward as a journalist and I know all the people I'm interviewing from other things, so it makes it easier. Um, what I, I learned from, from, from them is that everybody has a story that's interesting. They all overcame, it, uh, disadvantage. They all had failed at some point in their life. They all were viewed as not having been successful at something or another. And all of them struggled to get to where they are. They're all proud of what they've achieved. And all of them are have certain qualities, uh, in my view. They know how to communicate with other people. They know how to inspire other people. They're focused. They have high degree of integrity. Um, they, they know how to share the credit. And uh, there's the kind of qualities that I, I kind of admire. And a lot of them have a, a lot of humility. You know, if you accomplish a great deal in your life, you could be an arrogant person or brag a lot, but these people tend to not to do that. They tend to be people who say, I got lucky. I'm very lucky about what happened. And it's because of uh, some luck or good fortune. So I, they tend to be a little more humble. And I think humility is a, is a virtue. Now, I don't imagine every great leader is, is humble. I imagine Napoleon wasn't probably too humble. And I suspect, uh, you know, Alexander the Great who attached the great to his name probably wasn't that humble or Charlemagne probably wasn't that humble, but you know, that was a different era. Today, I think humility is recognized as being a virtue. And I think people who have it, I think are better off for it. And, and so I, I can only imagine with that description that you would uh, as- ascribe a good portion of your success to luck. Um, I would also wonder, like you, you talked a little bit earlier about the things that, that uh, you know, you contributed to the early days of Carlisle, the things that were your strengths and so on, you know, as now with a, uh, you know, a bit, bit of road under your, your, uh, your wheels, so to say, um, you know, what, what are some other things that you would ascribe your success to? Well, um, I would say my success is modest compared to the people I really admire, but I would say uh, hard work. I was known and I'm generally known as a hard worker. And I think it's hard to accomplish anything just nine to five, five days a week. Um, I always try to learn. I am an uh, inveterate book reader. I try to read two books a week. And uh, the trick to that is not that hard because I'm reading books on subjects I know reasonably well. I had to read a physics textbook. I wouldn't get through it. Uh, But I read a lot and try to learn and keep up with what's going on as much as possible. Um, Try to understand what makes other people tick. So I try to um, understand the motivations of other people and then kind of figure out how that can be, um, you know, useful in certain ways. Um, 
try to be polite to people, try to be responsive to people, try to be humble, um, try not to uh, uh, do things that are con- con- conveying arrogance or things like that. Uh, that's probably some of the things that were helpful to me. Well, I appreciate that overview, David. And David Rubenstein, it's been a pleasure to to get to know you a little bit, to get to know a bit more about your story. I appreciate you taking some time with me today. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guests will be Rich Gilbert, the Chief Digital Officer and Chief Information Officer of AFLAC.